Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Would you believe there are only 76 shopping days left until Christmas? Well, you shouldn't believe that because I totally made it up. And anyway, 76 days, that's heaps. So why would it even worry you? And what's shopping days? I mean, every day's a shopping day now. It's not the 80s. God. I wouldn't bring it up at all if not for the fact that we are planning our Christmas break Patreon episodes right now. So while all the other podcasts in the world take a break and the proper radio shows and TV shows, our patrons will still get a brand new episode of Australian True Crime every week over Christmas. So you still have 76 days to sign up. That's a joke. To patreon.com forward slash Ost True Crime Pod. Who knows? I mean, it depends on what day you listen to this, eh? 
stupid. And don't forget, if you can't afford gifts, you can give people something like a service, like help people who complain about this bit in reviews to learn how to fast forward. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. It was a marriage made in hell, really. I mean, any, anybody that got too close to dust end up getting burned. He was very clever in his own right, a great lateral thinker. Nothing ever phased us. He was always had found a way out of most situations. He was gregarious. He was funny. He was cruel. He was almost at times illiterate. He was generous, loving. Talk to anybody, they will say, I hated him. I loved him. He was in total control. When suburban bank manager Bob Perry took a phone call from his sister back on the farm in 1992, he was strangely unsurprised to hear something terrible had happened at his old friend Darcy's farm down the road. By the time he arrived, word around town was there'd been a shooting. And so unpredictable had his friend's recent behaviour been that Bob initially thought he was the culprit. It soon became apparent, though, that Darcy was the victim And over the following days and weeks, the secret life of this pillar of the community and champion sheep breeder was laid bare before the conservative country community. Perhaps the biggest shock awaited Bob, who thought he'd known it all. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Sometimes our use of the term how people become victims is misunderstood as victim blaming. Of course, it's not meant that way. It's meant in terms of considering how people cross paths with each other, what circumstances bring certain people together in certain incendiary or triggering situations that lead to one of them being harmed. And this case really is a good example of that if we look at it purely forensically. Darcy Wetnell, who's just one of the victims, lived in a time and place that limited his basic freedoms. And he was dealing with some childhood trauma. And the ways in which he learned to cope with that led to some pretty risky behaviour. Because of that behaviour, he crossed paths with another man who was no doubt coping in his own ways with some very significant childhood trauma of his own. The shockwaves of disaster emanating from these two damaged children are immense. There are just so many ways in which Darcy became a victim and in turn victimised others. But we bring you the story from a subtle and fascinating perspective, that of Darcy's lifelong friend Bob Perry and his friend, author and Colac bookshop owner Neil Drinnen. Together they've written about it and about so much more in their newly released book, Devil's Grip. A lot of stuff happens in the bookshop. Like, not that much happens in Colac, but a lot of things happen in the bookshop. And, and, and when I opened the bookshop in about 2012, word got out that there was some gay bloke opening a bookshop <laughs> Neil, in Colac. What made you open a bookshop? 
at all. I mean, I love that you did. When you write books, you get to go around and visit bookshops. And every time I do, I find myself thinking, oh, that's it. I'm opening a bookshop. This seems like the most wonderful world. And everyone says, no, no one buys books anymore. And certainly no one buys them from shops. So what Tell us about opening a bookshop in Colac. Well, I moved down. I'm, I left Sydney and moved down to the country to have the tree change, yeah. to get away from all the stress and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And buying a bookshop does not get you away from all the stress. But um, but it takes a while to work that out. I thought, well, I would still need a day job and I'd worked in books and publishing all my life. And, and having a bookshop is actually a really nice position to have in a town in terms of meeting people, in terms of connecting with, you know, the arts and that part of the town. Uh, In that sense, it's been a a great joy to me in lots of ways. And it was through that that um, Bob pretty quickly... you know, I was almost like the only gay in the village sort of sort of scenario. And, and Bob Bob came in one day and we started talking and sort of, you know, gave each other that nod that, you know, that, that, that lets the other fellow know that you might be one of those, as we call it in the book. <laughs> and Bob reads so many books and he started reading books. He started reading my books or my novels and we became good friends. And then it gradually emerged that he had this connection to this case, which was this triple murder case, which I knew the story of. I, I, I remember it when I was a journalist for the gay press back in the 90s. Um, I didn't do a story on it then, but I remembered it. And it was then we started looking together, sort of me saying, I think there's a story in this and Bob thinking, I want to write this story. And maybe a year or two of us sort of courting each other over it. What, what do you think, Bob? Oh, well, yeah, I was sort of in isolation at that stage. I'd sort of gone down to the bush and I was, I'd been there nearly 10 years down in the bush quite happily. And then, I don't know, we just sort of talked. Neil has a lot of people come into his shop just to talk and he's a good listener. I'm Um, interested in this, the nod that you were talking about before. You know, you were sort of joking, but sort of not. I grew up in the country and I distinctly remember asking my mum and having this conversation when I was a kid, how do gay people know each other are gay? I was wondering, how do they find each other? Gay people weren't visible. I didn't feel like there was a gay place to go and hang out. Or It's interesting that there was was a theory that some people run that, Gay people would be a lot better off if they were born green. Yes, right? (laughs) And it's such an interesting concept if you really think about it. Um, You wouldn't be hidden. You wouldn't have to hide. Your parents would know straight away so they wouldn't have this great trauma at At 21, yes. And and you'd know straight Mm. away. Yeah. But when you were a younger man, Bob, how did men in the country let each other know how did you meet other gay men we met at the beats of course of course where else are we going to meet things have changed now with all the different apps and things that are on your phone Mm -hmm. but i think it's an important point to make and i suppose for me personally it's an important point that i'd like to make because i have a family member who ended up hiv positive I would say because of that system, because he was very closeted, married, had children and felt like he could never come out to his family and, and he, was having secret sex. And, and he brought that home. This is his family was, was not infected. I don't know how. Oh, look, I don't know the ins and outs of his relationships, but I yeah. felt later like if he had felt like he could be himself, maybe that yeah. wouldn't have happened. Why, why did he marry? Mm. 
That's a standard question that runs around the gay community, and it's happening all the time as we sit here. So does it still happen? Yes, all the time. Yes. You'll still find online and on Grinder and Scruff and, and some of the apps that, you know, there's a lot of people who don't show their faces and who are living double lives. I mean, that's, that's still true, but very much my parents' generation, they were very much, there wasn't really a gay identity that you could, uh, have there wasn't a community as well, such, no and there's certain- as gay. Was that we never knew each other as gay when we were no. young. I think that's what I picked up a lot. It was about it's all that repressed desire, mm. and then when obviously Darcy's a big figure in the book, he's one of the well the main one of the main characters, and he was murdered. His sort of secret desires, but also his overwhelming desire to have a son because of the farming dynasty. So I I found it fascinating. You've got the rural Australia, you've got the maleness of that, and then you've got this repressed desire that it just felt like it was only ever going to end badly. Well, the fact that he, he- pulled that off i mean is is kind of bizarre and is but his wife had a terrible time and yeah. and you know he was not a man who should have married a woman and um you know that's sort of all in the story as well but there's there's also that whole other side to sexuality in a world where where homosexuality was a mental illness and it was a criminal activity that that desire and and the sort of chemicals that are released through desire become linked to the forbiddenness so the excitement and the illicitness and all of those sorts of things come together to to create almost another sexuality uh, you know that's why the beats and the and the and the secret locations became became so powerful in you know driving and desire still, still- is powerful. Yeah. Darcy's childhood was specific, but can we talk about your childhood, Bob? I was probably probably at six, probably a little bit older, um, knitting. I have seven sisters. I'm the youngest. How was I not going to learn how to knit? It's very cool to know how to knit now. I wish I could do it. Well, but the older brothers didn't see it that way. Yeah, I bet. You're so bullied. No, not bully, just normal family stuff. Yeah. Teased, teased. more like it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, hanging yeah, shit yeah. on each other. Hanging just teased. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, tricky situation with with some of them. Mm. But, yeah, yeah, I realised I was gay earlier, Ben. We, we had furtive looks that you weren't you knew you weren't supposed to do and just little things you you know you buy your kids um you buy your you know, my granddaughter buy a little dress tutu dress she loves a tutu dress um and the little blokey's tractors mm-hmm. that's the way it is we do it without thinking so we put them in a we categorize them very early yes and i knew i had a little bambi I love that little Bambi. I can still see that little Bambi. That little Bambi just disappeared. Oh, They're someone gone. took it off you. I presume it was Dad who, either Dad or one of the older brothers, got it and burnt it or something in effigy. Or, I don't know. Because in those days, may I ask how old you are? I'm 71. 71 now. Yeah. So in those days, people really thought they could change, didn't we? thought we were creating children, didn't we? Mm. Uh, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? If, if people... If you believe that it's genetic, then this book has a lot of resonance because it hopefully will convince some people that it is genetic. It's funny you say if you do because I just assume everyone. I was just assume it is. Some people not. Well, I I think probably some people don't, and I don't think knitting would have made you gay. And similarly, Darcy's childhood, Darcy Wentnell, who's one of the victims that we'll speak about, he 
was put into care as a young child and was sexually abused in care by guardians and by teenagers there. And so some people then will think, oh, well, that's what made him gay, won't they? Well, one of the things that I'm, I'm that fascinates me at the moment is how early abuse can have two effects. One can be to completely ruin a person and uh, disempower them entirely, and the other can be that that they become a complete narcissist and they completely, in a sense, become what Darcy became. He was able to develop this character that was very single-minded. He was a survivor, but you can see as you read the book what the cost of that survival was. That's so interesting. Let's talk about that because just a few weeks ago, Andrew Rule in his podcast was talking about some of the most terrifying criminals in Australian recent history who went through the boys' home system and who were sexually abused in that system and how they seem to take on this attitude of, I will never be a victim again, I will be the strong man as a result of that victimisation that they suffered as children. So tell us about, could both of you please tell us about Darcy as an adult? Who did he grow grow up to be? Apart from the fact that he was one of the world's foremost experts on Corridale, is that how I say it? Corridale sheep. So who was this man, Darcy Whittenall? Ah, many people, many people. Uh, I mean, my family, we, I've talked to them about this. Of course, we all grew up with Darcy. He was part of the family, basically. And none of us know, they all know a different Darcy. Everybody in the district knows a different Darcy. Um, he was a very complex personality. How did you meet him? My dad had a dairy farm next to Stanbury, and eventually Stan, Mr. Wetnall, Darcy's cousin sort of they bought dad's farm when dad retired with a heart attack and we moved to moved to geelong but all my youth does live next door so we were quite often at our house because we were one i was one of 10 they had by that stage there were sisters with husbands and kids they were all married to cockies all around the farm so you had a big big family lots of kids and and all of that all close together where it seems like his family Obviously, he was put into care young, then he was living with relatives. Well, he denied he had a family. He okay. denied he had brothers. He denied he, everything. I knew his mum. She'd rang once that I'd talked to. Um, but he denied many times that he had family. Mrs. Wettenall told me he had brothers. <laughs> But he denied he had had any family at all. And that was there. The whole 10 years I was there, I never met any of them. I never saw any of them. Um, his nieces, and he had nieces and nephews, apparently, but I never saw them. They were never at the farm. So to all intents and purposes, Mrs. Wet and Mr. Wet and all died very when I was very young. So I didn't know him. So it was only Mrs. Wet and Das that were there when I got there. She was the wife of his his second cousin. So Rupert Wettenhall, who 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 she'd started Stanbury with, was her husband, and and he died in nineteen sixty two. So she actually wasn't a blood blood relative. She was quite a bit older. She was an elderly lady. Mm. Yeah, she was. She was. Um, she was eighty one when she died, um, and she was probably forty ish when she married. So he's quite self made, right? He's had a rocky childhood, but he's gone on to become very well regarded. Very clever in his own right. A great lateral thinker. Nothing ever phased us. He was always uh, had found a way out of most situations. He was gregarious. He was funny. He was cruel. He was almost at times illiterate. He was generous, loving, all those things. He was a very, very complex man. If you talk to anybody, they will say, I hated him, I loved him, 
and trying to write that character or trying to see what Bob's affection for him was or Bob's uh, sense of duty to Darcy was and and my yeah you know, your obligation to him and my kind of I struggle because he you know, in lots of ways he comes out as a as a pretty appalling human being quite abusive in con- controlling I I got like the way you were so selfless in you worked so hard didn't you with Darcy you know and you obviously had these deep affections for him but it was I don't know it's like you were in his thrall a bit yeah, well, um, when I when I finally decided that I couldn't go on with the business, with you were talking about bringing something home to a married, I was in that sort of situation. I was I was I was married. I had kids. I had obligations. I had all that sort of thing. I was in the bank, and I was doing the beat. I mean, it was where was it going? It was a crane? Was a train wreck? So I had to do something about it. I had to, and I couldn't tell anybody what I was doing, but I had to do it, and. I was lucky my former wife, I never never talked to her about it until many years later. So she just accepted it as it was and I was lucky. I got out of it. I had to get out of it. There was no alternative. And I did that and got away. Both you and Darcy kind of had... We had, were in the same boat. Yeah, you had a, on a, almost a pact because neither of you wanted your children to bear the shame of having, you know, Poofs as dads, which was... was a, certainly Darcy could never have faced that, could he? You know, he no. everything about what he did with his son was to create a different experience for his son to what he had as a, as a young man, as a boy. We were in the same boat and I was I was working as a driving cabs at night and I was working the bank during the day and then I couldn't sleep was and I was living in a caravan and it was bloody horrible um, not eating because you never had time to eat yeah. um, and the only person this the only person that came anywhere near me was Darth and he turned up with a, a bag of groceries I remember it and it was such a, a wonderful thing for me at that time and I think that's where the obligation started. I know now, probably as a bit of a sceptic, that Darcy did nothing without a reason, uh, but that didn't matter. That didn't matter. I really needed a hand at that stage, and I wasn't going to ask for it. But what do you think the reason was, if, you, if you're going to be cynical about that moment? what? what? Oh, I think it was an attraction for us. He wanted me to moved to Stanbury. The, his MO was, he did that quite often. I didn't know anything about that, of course, and he had a house and he had a far, three farms all combined in one. Now, when they do this, there's always a house involved and the house was sitting there doing nothing, so he said, well, come and, why don't you come and live in the house? I can bring my kids out there on the weekend. I liked that. That was basically that where wonderful. I came from. Yeah. And for a board, I could, I could work for mm-hmm. board. And you were eight years younger and you were pretty hot and um, and you were perfect because you were such a kind of blokey bloke. So it that- all sounds good to me, if <laughs> I'm honest. And the family, he knew the family. Mm. So um, we all know, knew each other. He could move me in there without any questions. Basically, I know what happened. And it worked for me. I've I'm, I'm, got to be honest, it was good for me too. I mean, um, were you attracted to him? I didn't know. I don't know. Probably the physical attraction was fine. Okay. And I was I was in a spot where uh, I needed a hand, basically. 
and it's pretty hard to explain, but it worked out for both of us, yeah. And I, and I was so confused. I had a wife and kids and mortgages, and it wasn't just it, – that's a bit – how can I put it? I loved the lifestyle. I, I was just basically a farmer that was working in the bank. I came off a dairy farm. You know, we were all farmers. And the lifestyle I knew, and I would have stayed there forever if, well, if Darcy had been able to be a little different. But. And you describe that as well in the book. You say that the farming lifestyle, it either people just love it or it breaks them and I find that fascinating as well. And that's what's great about this book. There are a number of things that are great about it that set it apart is that I learned a lot about sheep breeding by the way and I love that and about farming and and I love that and I love it's evocative about the the farm and I also love that it includes so much about your experience. Neil and about the generations of growing up gay in Australia? Well, that was one of the things that I kind of perhaps didn't see coming when we first embarked on, on doing this book. But then I then it quickly became, because the, the AIDS is so relevant to how the story turns, mm -hmm. and so a lot of this was about looking at, at you know, really two generations of of gay men, me as a journalist in the 80s during the, the AIDS crisis, um, watching what that was doing, these guys are in the country sort of away from it and probably not really knowing very much about it at all. You know, it was really a terrifying decade to be gay. That was a very, very kind of white-knuckle decade. What, what happened between you and Darcy, Bob? He just decided it was over. Oh, really? That's it. Well, he never actually said that. He just uh, stopped the sex. We weren't having sex anymore. And I said, what's going on? Nothing. Didn't want sex anymore. I, now, it all came out later on that he wasn't, um, he was going elsewhere. Um, he was heading to Melbourne, uh, blah, blah, blah. We, uh, uh, the HIV thing, I didn't know anything about until after the coroner's re report. When they did the coroner's report, we all found out that he was HIV. It was in the papers, oh, blah, blah, it was, was big news. About three weeks after the murders, we got the reports that he was HIV. So you wouldn't have had any idea before? You wouldn't have even thought that your health was jeopardised or anything? Yeah. When did he stop coming to see you? When did he stop sleeping with you? Oh, probably 12 months before that. I mean, what do you think, Neil, do you think it's possible that he knew he was HIV positive and that was the reason why he stopped sleeping I, with Bob? I think, that, I think Bob and I both decided that. Bob, he came back from South America and Bob had a sort of sense that something had happened and, and of course, you said on lots of occasions he was having night sweats, he had, had rashes. Um, there are a whole lot of predetermining indicators there and, and one of the things that, we speculate about in the book is that perhaps part of why he stopped having sex with Bob was because he knew uh, he knew what he had and so he went elsewhere and sought the company of men who he deemed to have no real value and that's where the the tragedy kind of pollinated I think. Yeah, yeah sitting down all these years later and trying to work out what actually happened that seems the most logical way. Uh, and it, it's sad in a way that he couldn't come to me and tell me these things um, and to think that he thought so little of me that I wouldn't, 
you know, stay with him, wouldn't back him up, wouldn't help him, you know. And that, that's sad. To me, that hurts that he, he didn't value our friendship that much that he could talk to me in those sort of he, he was dying he was then that stage you've got to understand to get hiv to become hiv positive was that you were going to die usually within three years at the time that was about the the average um amount of time people were, were living in the in the 80s so it was a pretty a pretty There's short no sentence for a young person particularly if he was symptomatic already right and not being well, there really weren't any medication that were effective in the late eighties. There were trial drugs, and there was, but he wasn't accessing any of that. After the break, Darcy Wetnell's lonely spiral continues. Neil's bookshop in Colac is called Cowlick, by the way, so do be sure to drop in if you're in town. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Coming up on Australian True Crime... Darcy meets his match in another damaged man. But first, his tragic obsession with having a son. Everybody that knows Darcy will say that he treated his workers badly. He treated Mrs Wet badly. He probably treated Guy badly. He treated Guy different to other jackaroos that was there. He certainly treated me differently to any of them. One of the stock agents down there only said to me the other day that he said to me that why doesn't Darcy hit me? Uh, Darcy never hit me. Darcy never yelled at me. Um, he didn't need to. He was the boss. I didn't mind that. That was fine with me. So he was violent with some of his workers? He was, yep. I've seen it. Yep. He was almost out of control sometimes with some. His prestige seemed to allow him to to be like a celebrity chef or something, and just really, yeah. <laughs> really mistreat his staff. Which I uh, that was something I had to kind of. How, how did he get away with this when I was writing it? Guy Whitnell was his son. Who was Guy's mum? Jan McDonald is her name, and she was from another sheep breeding family in New South Wales. And she met him when she was about sixteen, and he was in his early twenties. Yes, it was a marriage that was pretty disastrous for her. His obsession to have a son is pretty much what dictated all the terms of that marriage. And once they had a son... Darcy never actually said that. Said what? 
that you got married just to have a son. A lot of the research that we did about Jan, she yeah. did she did a big uh, interview back back in the nineties for Women's Weekly, and she said that that was that was his obsession. Yeah, Jan, um, Jan said that. Yeah, yeah. It was um, it was a marriage made in hell, really. I mean, any anybody that got too close to dust end up getting burned. He wasn't a he wasn't a he was in total control. His relationships with women were quite toxic from an early age, and whether that's because he was rejected by his own mother or spent so much time in care or, you know, had fostering that was really toxic, it's hard to know. We don't really know. We we have to piece together some of those aspects of his early life, but we do know um, that whatever happened to him was essentially a rejection of his own family, and he was basically adopted by... Janet Wettenhall and her husband, and um, he, he kind of became their son, really. And so did Jan stay on the farm? She was there when you were there? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh-huh. Jan was never there when I was there. Yeah, she was gone when I came. Yeah, she, my sisters know more about it. She used to turn up at their place quite ill um, and trying to deal with Darth and the baby and all the rest of it. No, she left. She didn't um, take Guy with her? She left? She took Guy with her, but Darth got him back later through the courts. Pretty amazing at the time. It, uh, that is amazing, isn't it? Yep. But he had everything to offer the child. He had a farm, he had support, he had money, he had prestige, he had everything. And Jan was trying to make a life for herself, nursing training and the rest of it. And she left Guy with her mum, apparently. I'm, this is secondhand stuff, but she was uh, with her mum and um, Das said she wasn't looking after the baby properly. So we went and they went and took him and then they went to court and he Das was awarded custody of him. And that was in large part because Janet Wettenhall, mm-hmm. senior, she was prepared to be the other guardian and so it was a reasonably complex and dark moment I think in the in the family history that that she lost custody and and they they gained custody she was just a young mum trying to get get by and they just completely railroaded her the theme of mothers and motherlessness really does run through because the man who murdered Darcy he was really searching for his mother too so let's talk about then Wayne Walton how does Darcy come into contact with this young man Wayne Walton Wayne Walton, who was the murderer, he uh, met him at the Gill Homeless Shelter for Men, which was in North Melbourne, and it was a Salvation Army-run place, which I think had sort of been there since the Depression and may well have been a place that Darcy stayed himself when he was a teenager, homeless and and working at the racetracks and, and doing what he was doing before he found his way to Stanbury. So he met a number of young men there, or youngish men, and Wayne Walton was there. Wayne Walton had been in and out of jail for, he was only 24, but he'd been in and out of jail and care so, since so he was about 14 himself. So what's Darcy doing there? Is he just cruising Okay. Yeah, yeah, and 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 this wasn't the first man he p- picked up there, and it wasn't the f- first man who he'd taken back to Stanbury and installed in the place as well. He'd had Bob there for a decade, so Bob had been a significant person uh, and and companion and family member really for a decade. But when Bob left, that's when he started looking further afield for 
for sexual partners, for people to help on the farm. So he'd just arrive back with a new guy and say, hey, everyone, this is Gary. He lives here now. He's a new guy who works here. And that's this is it's interesting. We've talked about that, haven't we? How on earth he got away with this? Because this is a bro. He broke the golden rule: never bring them home, never bring them home, because he was trying to impress him with his money, his property, his prestige, his flash car, all these sort of things. But why bring? He knows their trouble. And he brings them home and introduces them to Mrs. Wet, who is a refined, lovely culture. Yeah, woman. he's he's bringing home rough trade. He's bringing home rough. That's the word for it. So he could control them. Absolutely, but he doesn't. He doesn't pay them. He tells them he's yeah. putting their money into accounts for them, which he's playing with fire, isn't it? And it's and but at this stage, he's also crook. Remember, he's also he's limited life at this stage. He doesn't know how long he's got. So he's, one of the one of the things also with. With HIV, and you know, we don't know. They might have diagnosed him as HIV positive after he was murdered, but they didn't do any blood work. We, you know, we, that we don't know how sick he was, but there were a lot of kind of bloodborne viruses and stuff that made people pretty crazy yeah. with HIV. And the way his behaviour went in that last year of his life, and the sorts of risks he he took, were probably symptomatic of of some of those things. Yeah. Bob wasn't there. No one who was there is alive anymore, and so we really had to speculate about how much things were slipping, yeah. uh, how much the, the relationships between all of them were starting to be strained and, and what was happening. It, it was always strained. Oh, really? Oh, yes. It was a, between he and Guy and Mrs. Oh, no, Wade. Guy was fine. Preshy was, we used to call him, Darcy used to call him Preshy. Preshy? Precious. Precious. <laughs> Little boy. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? It's gorgeous, it's That's not terrible. Called the but uh, the relationship between Guy and Darcy, Darcy was hard on him in a lot of ways but in other ways he indulged him a lot so the relationship uh, he was never physical with guy he dominated him of course but guy turned the tables in that one apparently a guy always had to whip handle because he was the only son he was it so he always had the whip handle he just realized it later on uh, but the relationship between das and mrs wet was always nasty Oh, on Always. both sides? Or? Oh, no, Mrs. Wet would not never be nasty. I never heard her swear. I never heard her say, well, she'd say, oh, Darcy, that would be it. Um, but she, I know she's a, she was a lady, Mrs. Wet. Anybody will tell you that. But Darcy treated her terribly. He was horrible to her. What must she have thought of these young blokes coming back? Could you imagine? She it? would have been shocked. But she, but then they'd always had workers there. Yeah. They'd always had jackaroos and jillaroos and workers. So she treated them just like she would one of the workers. Yeah. She didn't know what was going on. It's not as if he waltzed them in as his, yeah, his lover. you know, lover or anything. There was never anything. Das and I were never like that. We were never lovers, not to anybody else. And Mrs. Wet, well, I used to say to him. Mrs. Wet knows, and he'd say, no, no, she doesn't know, and he was petrified that Mrs. Wet would know. Or my, my sister and her husband lived just up the road that Darcy would drop in in the middle of the night because their light was always on. They'd be asleep in front of the television, but we'd go in and make a cup of coffee and go home again. The country. Um, she, she knew, but he was petrified that they would know anything, and it must have been perfectly obvious. 
We don't know. How do we know? But I'm sure Janet Wettenhall did. She was a very astute woman and she would have been playing her role through through all of this and prob- probably been in a, sa- a state of considerable despair when these the last two Waynes came to stay. So what happened when the last Wayne came home? Well, that was where things got really, really complicated and that's where... Bob and I maybe diverge in some 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 of our thoughts about what was happening, but in a way, that last Wayne, whose own life experience was completely tragic. You know, he'd grown up with a father who had murdered. When he was 11 years old, he watched his father stab his nine-year-old sister to death with 27 stab wounds to punish the mother for an affair he believed she was having with a, a guard in the prison he'd just come out of. So you get some idea of the sort of background to his life. None of this, of course, Darcy knew about but he came into the house with a, a history of darkness far far greater than Darcy could ever ever have known and we believed that he could see how pathologically terrified Darcy was of his sexuality being revealed and started to play that you know there was talk of blackmail there was he was borrowing Darcy's car, which, as Bob said, no one, no one, he wouldn't have let anyone drive his car. So there was a whole shift in the power dynamic and and stuff was stuff was going bad. He had money on him when he was caught. Yeah. Then that $2,000 in cash. Living in a caravan, unemployed, where does he get $2,000 there? So Darcy was so in such a bind. You know, he was ill. He was, uh, this young bloke had found out his secrets. He was wide open to blackmail. And he was so unpredictable, this Wayne. Well, you know, one of my theories is is that really it was almost like a... um, aggravated suicide in a sense Darcy was at a point now whether this was conscious or subconscious but he, he'd always been a bully and he's always chosen his targets and and you know if it's true that a bully's always looking for someone to stand up to him finally he found it with Wayne Walton and you know he was at a point in his life where he was really facing a horrible decline into a highly stigmatized fatal illness with AIDS or he could have one almighty standoff, which ended in his murder. Well, he was also facing a situation where sort of at any moment he could have some kind of medical episode that could see him admitted to the local hospital and the yeah. whole thing blown sky yeah. high. Yeah. Like, I've seen Das with Jackaroos and he had this this strange obsession. He had to break them down. If it, He sort of saw himself as someone who took these young people who had problems and he would make them whole. And he'd done it a lot of, with a lot of people. A lot of jackaroos went on to do good things. It sounds like you're talking about wild horses when you say that, breaking yeah. wild well, horses. He, he used the same principles that he broke horses to break people, yeah. break these. And he would keep at them and he was really good at it until they burst into tears. Once they burst into tears, and these are kids 22, 23, 24, he was fine. He, it, it, it he would turn into this benevolent, friendly, supportive individual. Amazing. And he must have seen, because this bloke and Guy would go shooting. They had Guy had all these guns. He, was, he had 
about four or five guns up in the gun shed. And, Wayne Walton, and so Wayne Walton, so Das must have seen how dangerous Wayne Walton was, how mm. proficient he was with with weapons, um, and uh, because Walton and Guy had gone shooting it all over the place. Das must have realised how dangerous this bloke was, and he, and my the, my thought is that. Das has pulled his act on this bloke and instead of bursting into tears, this bloke has just gone up the shed and got the gun and come back and... Oh, so your theory is that Darcy underestimated this guy? Absolutely he did. He met his match and everybody will say it's about time Darcy went and all met his match. That's the general reaction that I get. What happened? What, what do we know for sure? Well, I mean, the, the, what no one could have foreseen was that... that he'd kill two other people as well and i think that that's that's the unanswerable thing i mean uh, i kind of perceive it as uh, as and and he was on a lot of alcohol and a lot of serapax and he was pretty off his head you know something in me tells me that that he just saw this whole establishment all these double standards and lies and all of the the bullshit of it as something that he just wanted to blow away. You know, he'd, he'd looked at it and whatever it was that Darcy was doing, it was just all rotten and he just, he ended it all. Um, you know, how intellectual he was in making that decision, who can say? So he shot all three of them. He shot Darcy, his son Guy and old Mrs Wetnell, who was at that stage 81 years old. Mm-hmm. And he went back and shot them more times, didn't he? He shot the, the men and ex- he only shot her once and he just... I mean, he, he really didn't make any great attempt to escape. He, he ran off with his, uh, with his caravan mate on a drinking binge in a stolen car and got apprehended down in Brighton less than 24 hours later. So there was no great kind of plan. It doesn't seem as though it was premeditated. Do you remember where you were when you got the news, Bob? Oh, yes, I was in Melbourne. I was I was um, in the bank in Melbourne then. I was a relieving manager in Melbourne. The last, my sister rang me, um, the one that Bass used to go into all the time, and she rang me and said, Bob, something's going on down at Stanbury. There's uh, helicopters and police cars and roaring down Devon Road. Something's going on. Um, I said, oh, I don't know. I said, I'll come on. So I came home and I first thought, damn, Bass has killed Mrs. Wet. That's what I thought, because their relationship was horrible sometimes. And when I got there, the police had cordoned off the front because the driver probably half a mile down to the house through the property, and the police had cordoned it all off. The neighbours were all at the front gate, and that's as far as I could get. And then they said there was three bodies, and I thought, what the hell is going on? So we knew there had to be a third party or another party that, and, and you thought then that it was was all of the family? Well, three had to be. Uh, we didn't know. No one was told. The police hadn't said anything. Uh, but the the lady who found them, Mrs. Loffel, well, she we'd heard who it was. Um, she says, "Guy's face." Oh, anyway, um, it was. It must have been a horrible thing for her to find these bodies. Well, she found one and then just ran. After that. The biggest twist in the story really was that that Bob was Guy's executor, and Bob. Um, Did you know that before he died? Oh yeah. Oh okay. But I expect I've been gone twelve months, yeah. and 
well, Darth wasn't happy when I left because he won't put this proposal. Oh, you can stay here. There's no reason to go. Uh, but, of course, I wasn't going to be caught in that one. But uh, I'd been left for 12 months, so I assumed that that had all been changed. But it hadn't. And when when the, the murders had happened and and the farm was there, it needed to be run, Bob was the only person in the world, really, who knew what to do because everyone was dead. So I left the bank uh, and I... And Bill and I ran the place. Well, Bill wasn't there. I was there most of the time. And another another young bloke was there. It was, I gladly did it because yeah. I loved the place. Yeah. Um, and we kept it going for 12 months until it could be sold as a going concern. And that was worth a lot of money to the estate that it be sold as a going concern, which it was. Who inherited the estate, if I may ask a crass question, because if he said he had no family anywhere and then Guy died with him? It's complicated. The fact that each of their wills fed into each other basically meant that it was it was unclear and also was unclear who had died first and so much of the of the disbursements would be affected by the order of death and so they had to look at how it appeared to have happened and how else it might have happened and the the executors all had to agree on a, on one particular outcome and the financial disbursements that came out of that so it, it is a fascinating aspect to the story the way the way things went and revealing that hasn't impressed a, a few people <laughs> let's be honest but it, it was interesting if if guy had died first then Darcy's estate instead of passing to Guy, because he predeceased him, would go to his closest relatives, which would have been his mum. It, oh, yes, it of course. complicated the whole, the whole thing. thing. So apparently there is a precedent the solicitors got together uh, that... Oldest to youngest. Yeah, and cases are like that where there's any, it's simply oldest, oldest to youngest. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. So, so Mrs. Wet, Guy, Darcy. So, so Jan got it? No, 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 no. When Guy came to me to, to talk to me about, asked me to be his executor, he said to me, who do I leave it to? I said, well, you leave it to your father, of course. Um, and 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 then if he predeceased you or something, then you leave to whoever you like. Mm. I remember saying that. You just leave to whoever you like. That's up to you. So he left it to all his mates. <laughs> and And that was it. After all this time to tell the story through your eyes, from your perspective, how does it feel? How does it feel to have somebody say, we've got to get this out there, man. We've got to tell your story. It's not actually telling the story. It's, a, it's the interaction between Neil and myself over the last two years, which has been the liberating thing for me. I'm a different person than what I was two years ago. Um, uh, uh, there are there were remnants two years ago of still hiding. I was a recluse basically, and I've come I've, I've come out again. Um, the first time was in the papers. This time I'm doing it deliberately, and I've already had people, my family. Well, it's cost us a bit, hasn't it, here and there? But the the passage has been what's important to us, to me at least, and it's fantastic. I think you know the the book is what it is. Um, because of the friendship that we've had and because of what, the way we've been able to go on this journey together. And I think some of the things that are icky to some people about the fact that we've dug up things from the past or whatever 
are kind of inevitable. You know, I think that that both Bob and I realise that we've had to stick our necks out quite a bit with a, with well, a number of things in a regional part of Australia, you know, Victoria where we live. And I think it's all of that's going to be worthwhile. But you do have to have a bit of courage when you tackle some of these things because there are always going to be people who won't want to look at mm-hmm. some of the issues. And you both talk about your HIV status, which is really, it's not a death sentence anymore, but it's very brave because it's something so personal and like health stuff is personal and you... Well, it's very brave or very foolish. We don't know yet. <laughs> um, I think I think it's I think we both decided at one point that that we really had to include that because it's such a part of the plot. Even though it's not the story, it's one of those things that um, has affected well. I think Darcy, we must, you, and me. I and think the, the main thing that I just want to get across is that. Um, my opinion, the whole all this happened because of all these secrets that Das and I kept. Yeah. The beat, all this sort of stuff, this this pathological desire we had to keep at all a secret. Yeah, yeah but that, that wasn't your fault. No, no, but people for but, doing uh, that. Now, but it's my fault now if I perpetuate that. And and um, Neil and I decided we would when we're writing the book. First thing we do, we tell it all. We were there weren't going to be any elephants in the room. All HIV, um, a lot of things we were going to talk about, and that has offended some people. Um, my older siblings, uh, you know, they 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 won't read the book. Some of them won't read the book um, because it's a bit tacky for them, and that's fair enough. I understand that, but that's the way it is. That's the life we lead. That's the life Darcy and I led, um, and. It's a story that's got to be told uh, and it's already resonated with some of the younger ones in my family. If the book does nothing else, that's, it's a success to me. Devil's Grip by Neil Drinnan is available now. You can buy it in the bookshop on our website, australiantruecrimepodcast.com and everywhere else you buy your books. And don't forget to drop in on Neil next time you're in Colac at the Cowlick Bookshop. He's a very good listener, I'm told. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. 
With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.